You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. A big week in Washington with Senate passage of the debt ceiling deal last night. The full faith and credit of the United States is in the clear. Three days before Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the U.S. would run out of money to pay all of its bills in full. Joining me now to talk about how we finally got here is the chief correspondent for the Washington Post, Dan Baltz. Dan, as always, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Good morning. So the the president will address the nation uh, tonight, probably around 7 o'clock. What do you expect him to say? Well, I expect him to say that, uh, in this case, bipartisanship worked, uh, that patience worked, that it showed to the American people that despite all of the polarization and nastiness in our politics, there are moments when both parties can come together. Granted, uh, there was really no way they could not come together on this uh, because of the danger of a default, Um, but I think he will celebrate that. I suspect he will also talk about the degree to which the Republicans um, put the economy at risk by, uh, you know, by by trying to negotiate with the uh, with the debt ceiling in the background, um, but my guess is that he will be more bipartisan than partisan in the speech tonight, and and and, and probably appropriately so. Mm-hmm. So both the president and Speaker Kevin McCarthy have claimed victory uh, with this deal. Who's more right here? Um, You know, I think both can claim some measure of victory on this. Uh, I think the president will get a little bit more credit, but I think you have to give Speaker McCarthy uh, credit as well uh, for this reason. Um, he, you know, as we all remember, it took 15 ballots for him to become speaker. Um, there was much written about the degree to which he would be uh, hostage to uh, just a handful of uh, the Freedom Caucus members in the in the House. Um, and in the end, those members were not happy with this agreement. Many of them did not vote for it. Uh, and yet he got a supermajority of the majority of members in the House to vote for it. So I think you have to give him credit for figuring out how to maneuver on that. And, um, you know, for being willing to take far less than those, many of those in his uh, conference wanted uh, to see in this bill. So um, he got much less than that was in the House bill. But nonetheless, he was able to negotiate with the White House and get this accomplished. But uh, but the president certainly will be able to claim a good deal of credit on this um, in, for working it in both directions. One, to continue to point out uh, that it was the Republicans who were who were holding uh, the debt ceiling hostage to other negotiations, but also um, it, it, throughout the negotiations, uh, maintaining both a kind of hard line on that message, but also at the same time continuing to express optimism uh, when the negotiations were going kind of back and forth and up and down. And, and I think that, that that is testament to the president's longstanding uh, knowledge of how Congress works and how these negotiations in particular uh, tend to play out. And given what you just said, this is perfect uh, because I was about to ask you, were both men, <clears throat> the speaker and the president, were they both underestimated? Um, to your point, a lot of people thought Speaker McCarthy wouldn't be able to get anything done, one, because it took 15 ballots to get the gavel, but two, he had a restive um, far-right caucus he had to deal with. And then on the flip side with the president, a lot of people, uh, Democrats were complaining, oh my God, here he goes again, Mr. Bipartisanship, he's gonna give away the store. And in the end, to your point, both men signed on to a deal that both can credibly claim 
was a victory. Yes, I think that's right. I I I think you're correct that that people had underestimated Speaker McCarthy. I think I think people uh, overstated the degree to which he was in a very very fragile position. Now, notwithstanding what happened on this. Uh, he remains in a somewhat fragile position, just given the nature and, and raucousness of, of his conference and the degree to which the Freedom Caucus members uh, are prepared to be disruptive. Uh, but I think he showed in this case that he was willing to stand up against them, uh, <clears throat> take what he could get and move forward and claim some measure of victory in, on, the, on the spending front that, that this, this measure in some small ways does reduce spending or could reduce spending over the, over the longer term. Um, and I think this is another example of the president being, you know, true to his word from the very beginning of his candidacy in 2020, uh, that there were ways for Washington to work together and that he would seek to do that, that he would in, 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 in every way possible try to lower the temperature of our politics. And this was another example of him doing this. Now, again, this is one of those circumstances where this had to get done. Uh, and so in, in, in all the ways we are giving credit to both sides for, you know, and, and particularly the president and the speaker uh, for finding a way to get this done, it is a reminder that Washington often works only by crisis, and that is not effective governing. You know what? And to that point, let's let's play um, uh, what Senator Dick Durbin had to say um, when uh, they were voting on this the bill in the Senate last night. Listen to this. Default is not an option. <clears throat> that means we have to pass this bill. I'm going to have to swallow hard on some parts of it. I'm sure other members say the same thing. But the responsible thing to do for America is to pass it. And and that helps to explain one not only. Um, why it passed, but why it passed with more votes than anybody expected. Yes, uh, certainly the vote in the House was a very big vote. I don't think anyone anticipated that that, that would go through with more than 300 votes in the House. Yeah. Um, I, I think in the Senate, people believe that it was going to get 60, it got 63 in the end, um, but that's a strong, strong vote as well. Um, but uh, everybody had to swallow hard in some ways, and yet I think that for, for in a sense, the broad middle of the of the Congress, um, there was you know there was a kind of a sigh of relief at at what this what this final resolution did not do, what the package did not do. It was not as draconian uh, as some people uh, on the on the left had feared, um, and and at the same time. The conservatives were able to say that the president was forced into a negotiation that he vowed he would never do, uh, and that he was willing to put some constraints on spending uh, at a time when a lot of people in the Democratic Party were unhappy about seeing that happen. And and so this is all happening. This the bill gets passed uh, in the Senate last night, and then today we wake up to find out that the May, the May jobs report came out and it was a doozy, 339,000 jobs created, the unemployment rate at 3.7%, which is a tick up from last month. But that's low unemployment and high job creation. Could these numbers not be coming out at a, at a better time? Well, well, we'll see what the markets say <laughs> in an hour when they, 
when they digest it, because the markets are always, in a sense, uh, uh, contrary to, to what it seems. But uh, this is certainly a very positive jobs report. Um, I, I think the issue is what does this do to the Federal Reserve? Uh, how do they digest this? What do they think this uh, will require in terms of possibly uh, a, another you know, increase in interest rates? Um, what does it do to forecast for a possible recession? I think, but it's a robust uh, jobs number. And I think that uh, I haven't looked at it closely, but my uh, assumption is that the unemployment rate went up uh, because more people came into the labor force, um, which is also a good sign. Right, right. And real quickly, Dan, because as always, when you and I get to talking, time flies. So we got several Republican, back to the debt ceiling, several Republican presidential hopefuls um, came out against the bill. Donald Trump, Senator Tim Scott, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence also called the deal too timid. And this puts them at odds with the Speaker and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who both voted for it. Is that going to be a problem? No, I don't think it's a real problem. I think it's I think it's an indication that those the, the people who are running for president are playing very, very much to the Republican primary electorate. Uh, and in this case, the, there's no cost to them for opposing this. It basically says, I would have taken a much harder line. Now, if, you know, if any of them were president, they would have had to negotiate in the way that the Speaker and President Biden did and would have had to come to some resolution that probably would have dissatisfied people in their conference. But but as a, as a kind of a pure political tactic, I think it's quite understandable and in many ways predictable that they would come down uh, against this to show their toughness, to show that they are going to do more to to rein in Washington and that, and that they would oppose uh, Biden and uh, and the Democrats on many of these issues. I'm going to squeeze in one more question, Dan, just because you're here and and um, and I've got the camera. <laughs> so next week we've got two more Republicans who are going to jump into the race: former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Vice President Mike Pence, both expected to get into the race. And when that happens, we'll be up to nine Republicans running for the nomination. The question to you is: Does this help or hurt? Donald Trump's chances of winning the nomination. Well, if the, if everybody stays in for a good long time, it's it's beneficial to President Trump because it means that the that the vote of the Republican primaries will be fractured, uh, and he can win those winner take all primaries uh, with a smaller plurality, um, and therefore continue to have his way. I think the real question is how long all of these people stay in. It's one thing to get in in, you know, in April or May or June of the year before. Uh, it's another thing to sustain yourself into the primaries. And then once you start to lose, uh, to resist the pressure to get out, because there will be pressure to do so on those people. Right. Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you very much, as always, for coming back to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. Right, we're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Christine Emba and Jason Willick. There they are. <laughs> I was like, where are they? Are they here? <laughs> Christine, Jason, welcome back to First Look. Good morning, Jonathan. So let's keep the conversation going about uh, 2024 and the Republican um, race for the nomination. Christine, um, after, as I mentioned to Dan, after Christie and Pence get in the race, we're going to have nine Republicans vying for the Republican nomination. And I'm putting, I'll pose the question to you, 
that I pose to Dan, does that help or hurt uh, former President Donald Trump? I mean, nine different candidates vying for the nomination. Doesn't that remind you of a time a few years ago? Maybe. Oh, yeah. 2016, uh, in which the sheer number of candidates splitting the vote in the Republican primary made it very easy for Donald Trump to sort of scoop up majorities and, and move in for the crown, as it were. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be unfortunate if that were to happen again, but it certainly seems plausible uh, as these candidates continue entering. Right. And, and Jason, I love your thoughts on this, but I want to um, read to folks something you wrote in, in a column recently, and, and I, I'm going to quote it. If Trump had lost in 2020 like a normal president, leaving office uneventfully without inspiring a riot, there probably wouldn't even be a 2024 primary of consequence. Explain what you meant by that. Well, I think it's important to just remember how popular uh, Donald Trump was with Republicans. They considered his presidency to be just a phenomenal success. I don't think um, Bush, George W. Bush certainly left office with the same approvals, maybe Ronald Reagan did. But from Republicans' perspective, Donald Trump was like a really successful president with over 90% approval. So you've got basically um, a president everyone in the party really liked uh, running for office again. It's almost like you've got a popular incumbent. Um, He's, he's got a good chance of winning on the face of it. I think that the January 6th and Trump's um, causing the Republicans to lose after that in 2022 um, and in the Georgia runoffs and so on, you know, created demand for a challenger. But I think without his extraordinary behavior after November, if he had, um, you know, Republicans overperformed expectations in 2020, and if Trump hadn't behaved the way that he had, I think he would have just been on a total glide path to the nomination. He already may be on a glide path to the nomination, but the resistance would be even less uh, if he had uh, left office without all of all of the things that happened. Jason, let me, let me stick with you because I'm trying to understand something. <clears throat> You've got um, uh, Governor Chris Christie, who's about to jump in the race. I can, I can see the lane he would occupy in the race. Um, we had, uh, who just jumped, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. I kind of see the lane he's trying, he's trying to occupy in this race. The person I don't understand is former Vice President Mike Pence. What lane is he going to occupy in a race for the Republican nomination in a, in a party that, as you say, loves the man who incited a riot where the people were chanting, hang Mike Pence. I don't know what Mike Pence is, is uh, <laughs> thinks his lane is. I think, you know, he's a very sincere uh, public servant and a, and a good man. And he, he's very much, we were, I mentioned, you know, Ronald Reagan, he's very much in that tradition of Republicans, um, and uh, and maybe in another universe he would have a, a chance, but you know he's he's just not going to get anywhere, as you say. But I guess a lot of these politicians, you know, they all imagine themselves in the Oval Office, right? And if you're Mike Pence, I mean, you were you don't have to imagine being in the Oval Office. You are a heartbeat away from being in the Oval Office. So I I kind in that regard I get it, but. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Christy, let's switch gears, um, because yesterday we learned federal prosecutors have audio 
of Donald Trump from July 2021, acknowledging he had a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. And in the recording, he explains he's, he has limited, limited ability to declassify it, which undercuts his legal, uh, legal arguments, such as it is, that he um, declassified everything. And also one of his arguments is he could declassify it with his mind, but we'll just put that over there. Legally, that potentially opens up Trump to greater legal jeopardy. But do voters care? <laughs> Specifically, swing voters. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, you lay it out perfectly. Uh, it seems that from the reporting that has been seen first produced by CNN, um, that Trump had been recording meetings that he had with other people for his biographer or for to distribute to people who were writing books about him that year. And he was having sort of a debate about whether he had or had not had plans to attack Iran and then just talked about them and was perhaps actually waving around the document. Um, there's like rustling on the tape, apparently, that sounds like maybe he had the classified document in hand, but we we don't know that yet. It's <laughs> like that. <laughs> yes, exactly that. It's so easy to imagine Donald Trump doing that. And it, it, it just seems clear that he cared much more about his own personal press, the biographer, like getting the notes right, uh, than he did about national security. That said, you know, Trump is being investigated for so many things at this point. And these investigations, because they are, in fact, proper legal procedures, are taking some time. He's been under investigation for months. They begin to blend together. There's news coming out about them, of course, but there's also news coming out about, as you just discussed, the debt ceiling, about the jobs report, about homelessness, about crime, about everything else. I suspect, and I mean, I'm, I'm saying this in part because this is kind of my perspective, that voters are tired of hearing about Trump. He's always up to some sort of shenanigan uh, to the point that it sort of just fades into the background noise. Like, oh, Trump is being investigated and there's more evidence. Like, no, nah, what's new? It's also raining outside, you know? Um, <laughs> and I'm just I'm not sure that that is going to... Um, really change people's minds when they get into the voting booth or when they're thinking about who to support. It's just part and parcel of Trump. Jason, what do you think? Well, I do think that it appears that Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, wants to um, indict Trump and is likely to recommend uh, indicting Trump uh, on these classified documents, whether Merrick Garland, the attorney general, um, approves of that decision, you know, is maybe somewhat in question, but I think it's likely that we're going to see an indictment from Jack Smith. I think the problem with this indictment related to classified documents is, of course, just after um, we found out that Trump had classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, we found out that President Biden was finding classified documents, we found out that former Vice President Mike Pence was finding classified documents, and the argument, of course, is going to be, um, you know, Trump what Trump did was of a different scale or that he um, tried to resist efforts to return them. But I think that that, uh, just that, uh, the muddy waters in that sense um, make this a politically uh, perilous um, road, frankly, for the Justice Department because Trump is gonna say, well, they're not investigating Biden. Look, Hillary Clinton had classified, you know, Hillary Clinton had an email server. And and so I'm not sure that, the, that this is a politically, um, such a compelling charge, frankly, uh, whatever the, the legal uh, fallout is. It was a politically, eh, 
legally? Oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. Jason, I would just stick with you because um, you, you um, well, Governor DeSantis has been all over Iowa um, this week taking swipes at the former president. You've said that DeSantis is probably the only candidate right now who could compete with, compete with Trump. Why is that? Well, I think Trump changed the Republican Party a lot. I think he made it uh, a different kind of party, a more populist party on various um, issues and um, a more combative party. And, and I think that Ron DeSantis sort of absorbed those changes and reflected them in his governance of Florida, if not in his uh, personality. His personality is, is quite different from Trump's. But I think on the issues, um, he is closest to where the party is and um, closest to the way that Trump has changed the party. You know, other candidates we mentioned, Mike Pence, are basically running for the nomination of a different of a different party than the one that currently exists. Um, and, and okay, here's the question I'm dying I'm dying to know, and I'm going to ask you this, Jason. Then I I want to get your your um, response, Christine. Does Governor DeSantis truly does he have the guts? to say the critical things he's saying on the campaign trail to Donald Trump's face on the debate stage with him standing right here? You know, I might have said no a few weeks ago. Now I think maybe yes. In the last you know week or so of media tours, uh, Governor DeSantis has been quite critical of Trump uh, openly. He's been saying, give me a break. His whole family moved to Florida. And now he's saying he... Florida was badly governed. So I, I, I think he's, uh, he's building up some of that, that courage. Christine, wh what do you think? Am I not giving the governor enough credit? I mean, <laughs> this is the question that everybody has, right? Like, does Ron DeSantis really have the juice? And frankly, I, I, I'm not convinced. I don't really think so. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis has tried to sort of make a lane for himself by being the pugnacious Florida governor who is um, sort of MAGA extreme in his policy positions. Um, you know, Florida has a very early abortion ban. They have cracked down on um, speech in colleges and schools. It's very culture warry, very in your face, but you know, that's, that's all happening in Florida. And one of the things that we've noticed um, on the campaign trail as it exists right now is that voters may not be as interested in fighting wokeness as they were even a year ago. And Ron DeSantis himself has, in fact, downplayed uh, the abortion ban in Florida because it's frankly not that popular. The thing with Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump is that, you know, for, for whatever other qualities that he's missing, Donald Trump is something of a savant when it comes to insulting people and breaking yeah. them down. Um, yeah. He comes up with nicknames that are like, they're ridiculous, but just stick in your head. Meatball Ron, you know, like purposefully getting DeSantis' last name wrong constantly. It's juvenile and yet it works. And what we've seen of Ron DeSantis on the trail and in person is that he's a little bit socially awkward, actually. He is not necessarily a strong personality, while he is in some cases willing to go after Trump online uh, and when he's on a separate stage, I don't know that he's going to be able to stand up to the force of Donald Trump's loud, ridiculous, 
pernicious, mm-hmm. but very effective personality. I am finding it hard to believe. Yeah, and the other thing about Donald Trump that we've seen uh, on the debate stage in his presidency is he's an asymmetrical fighter uh, who will say the sky is blue at nine o'clock and then, no, I, I said it was red at 9.01. And then you're like, well, what do I do with that? Um, Jason, um, Christine raises, a, raises a, an interesting point. When it comes to legislation, Governor DeSantis in Florida has implemented, like signed into law, um, the far right's uh, agenda. There's a six-week abortion ban. Haven't even mentioned the immigration law that is now on the books that has a lot of businesses in Florida worried, worried about worker shortages and actually businesses closing. It, these are things he has implemented, signed into law things that play really well among the Republican primary voters who he will need to get the nomination. My question to you is, are those laws so far out of the mainstream that they will make him vulnerable in a general election, even against uh, President Biden, who the right likes to say is not all there? I do think some of his uh, Florida record will make him vulnerable in a general election. Frankly, we just saw the other day, um, DeSantis's uh, online arm was the DeSantis war room, I think it was, was criticizing Donald Trump for defending his record on the vaccine and saying, you know, I'm proud of the vaccine. Lots of people wanted the vaccine. You know, that's that's an example where Trump is to the center uh, compared to DeSantis, where DeSantis is more to Trump's right. Abortion is probably another example where Donald Trump is not that vocal about um, wanting restrictive abortion laws. So I think Ironically, you know, Trump uh, has a kind of centrist appeal, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, that Ron DeSantis doesn't have. And I think some of this ideological stuff might be a bit much. I think early in his governorship, uh, Ron DeSantis was more of a triangulator. Um, I think as he started running for president in the last year, his governorship took a more conservative turn that, that I do agree makes him um, would be attacked in the general election. Hmm. So in, in the like 90 seconds that we have left, Christine, I'm going to give you the last word here. Given what Jason said, which is interesting, that Trump has centrist appeal. So if that's the case, who's the better person for President Biden to run against? Is it centrist Donald Trump or far right Ron DeSantis? Wow, that's that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, oh, there, there's so many factors at play here, actually. Right. First, you can think about just, you know, the age question. If Ron DeSantis is on stage next to Joe Biden, who even Democrats, frankly, think is becoming a bit aged, um, that that might, you know, shift some minds. That might be a hard comparison. That said, if Joe Biden, who, you know, just passed uh, a debt ceiling bill that was bipartisan, that sort of got Washington moving together, who is at this point known as you know, a guy who makes things work and gets things done in government is on the stage next to Donald Trump, known for inciting a riot in the Capitol and causing, you know, divisions um, that were, you know, sort of unheard of for the past several decades, then, you know, maybe actually Joe Biden looks pretty good there. Um, it's, It's really hard to say, actually. I do think, however, that Donald Trump does have this, uh, this just mega quartile, this section of the Republican Party and the general populace so firmly in his pocket. Um, And Joe Biden does not have a constituency that firm. 
um, that that matchup could still be pretty ugly. Well, we've got months and months of time <laughs> to watch this and to talk about it some more. Christine Emba, Jason Willick, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.